0: Amen. Well, we're talking about the purpose of the church. That's it. It's a worship before God that we might just stand still and wait for the glory of God to come and then respond to him. So I said for the last week, few weeks we've been looking at the purpose of the church and we've been asking ourselves, what does the church exist for? What's the main purpose? What's our goal? And in my opinion, the best way to really understand the church is to look at uh, why it was started. So we've been in the book of Acts, which gives us an account of the early days of the church. That's what we've been reading through. And what we know is that after Christ's resurrection and then his ascension, on the day of Pentecost, as the early followers of Jesus are gathered in the upper room, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the believers... And the church is born. Now, Jesus had always promised that when he left, that he would ask the Father to send this constant companion. Well, that's the Holy Spirit who comes. And he came upon the early uh, church in dramatic fashion. And the church is born. And after Pentecost, the message of the resurrection uh, begins to spread rapidly in Jerusalem. Spirit empowered witnessing, uh, sharing the gospel with the lost. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, it says, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. So it's still going. The growth of the church is growing as men and women are responding and believing in Jesus and his resurrection. In addition to new converts, there are signs and wonders that are accompanying the preaching of the word. No one could deny that God was at work. It was an amazing moment in history there in the old city of Jerusalem. In verse 15 of Acts 5, it describes how, what this moving this moment was. It says, They even carried the sick out into the streets... And laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. I mean, just imagine this for a moment. The, uh, such a buzz about Peter and about these early followers and the movement of the church. So much so that be- believers, you know, what's happening here, what's occurring within the city is that the people are bringing sick people out into the streets, laying them on mats, just hoping they might have a chance encounter with Peter and receive healing. The way Luke writes, they even believed that if his shadow were to pass over them, it might have the power to heal them. And you think that's got to just be fake news. And here they are believing this fake news in first century Jerusalem. But verse 16 says people were coming... From all different towns and villages, they're bringing the sick, they're bringing the demon-possessed people. And uh, it says they were all being healed. They were all being healed. So God was up to something pretty powerful in this moment in history. People were desperate for a move of God in their lives. And they were seeing it happen. As I was reading that verse... It reminded me of current events for today. You know, news broke yesterday that the first person on American soil with a novel coronavirus uh, has passed away. And so it is, at least it's sounding like a scary time for us. I mean, there's a virus that we don't know much about sweeping, sweeping across the planet. If our national health folks are correct, it should be here in a matter of days or a matter of weeks that the first person is diagnosed in our own neck of the woods. Now, of course, I don't see any reason to panic Or to blow it out of proportion, but there's a lot of unknown about the virus. And that's not much unlike the world that we find the apostles in when people were bringing out the sick for healing. Because they didn't know, they didn't have modern medicine to know how to seek healing. They didn't know how, they didn't have research to tell them what they might could do so that they could find a cure. Instead, they would just simply pray for a miracle worker. Uh, that Peter, his shadow might just pass across me, was news breaks about this novel coronavirus, and we don't know what to do or what to believe, rather than turning to fear. I just wanted to ask the people of God to turn to faith. Let's not panic about this. Instead, let's just pray. Let's pray for God to slow the advance of the virus. Let's pray for God to bless scientists with the, the the information they need to make the uh, vaccine let's pray for warmer weather to come quickly for a whole lot of reasons but maybe it'll also slow the progress of the spread of this virus so I just wanted to just open that way just asking you to join with me that we pray as a people of God that God would just let his shadow pass over and to prevent just any more devastating blows from this especially in our own community Well, with regards to the first century church, the Holy Spirit was manifesting his presence and validating the church through signs and wonders, and many were believing in the name of Jesus. And the point is that the church was alive and well in Jerusalem, but not everyone was happy with the success of the church. So we're going to look at Acts 5, and I'm going to read now from verse 17, and we're going to move through this passage, but I'm going to read, first begin with verses 17 and 18. It says, but the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. So is anyone surprised that jealousy was creating problems in the community? It seems so petty, right? But we know the devastating effects of jealousy among a group of people. So as Peter and the apostles are seeing this incredible move of the Spirit through signs and wonders and people converting, the religious establishment, they're jealous. They're envious of what's happening. You know, because they're thinking people are more interested in them. What about us? You know, they're following this way. I mean, we have some good things going, too. I mean, where are the people to follow us? And what we see unfolding is this conflict between Christianity and the Jewish establishment of the day is intensifying. It had reached a fever pitch weeks earlier when they had arrested and crucified Jesus Maybe it died down, and now it's beginning to increase again to the point that they're thinking, we've got to control this. We've got to stamp this out. And so the high priest who rose up, according to the passage, in front of the Sanhedrin, he's the one with tasked with managing the spiritual affairs of the Jewish people. So this movement of Christianity is on his turf, and he's determined to stop it and stop the progress. So the religious establishment... Has no spiritual leverage at this point, but what they do have is political leverage. So they turn to political power. They have them arrested and put in a public jail so they can hold them until the point when they decide what they can do to keep them quiet. So the apostles locked up. They're under guard in a public jail. Everybody knows they're there. Verse 19, it says, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go. Stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. So God, sovereign over all things, sends one of his messengers to this well-secured jail to free the apostles and says, keep on speaking. Keep on preaching the gospel. And that's exactly what happens. The angel opens the gates of the prison. He offers them a command. He says, go. Stand, speak to the people in the temple. I want you to think about this for a moment. We have a couple of lawyers in our church, maybe a few more than a couple, but some of them work with uh, criminals. And when they get a client out of jail, what's the best advice they give to that criminal? It's to lay low. You know, do everything within your power not to draw attention. Don't create a stir so that the the police are coming after you again. But God doesn't do that for the apostles. He frees them and he says, now go and do it again, you know. See what we can make happen here is what it sounds like. And that's exactly what they did. Scripture says right at daybreak. So that's probably whenever the morning sacrifices are taking place. Morning prayers, people are parading into the temple. They go right up to the temple and they begin to teach. And the fact that the the apostles are teaching the gospel message is a reminder that the message is not intuitive. In other words, just because they knew Peter had miraculous power did not mean that they knew how to receive salvation. Just because they had heard of Jesus and perhaps heard rumors that he was resurrected from the dead didn't know that they were to believe in him for salvation. In other words, the gospel has to be explained. It must be taught. That's why being ambassadors for Christ means we cannot just let our witness be our actions. It also has to be in our words. We cannot just pray for God to appear in visions and expect the gospel to spread that way because it must be spoken. Romans 10, 14, Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The gospel requires that somebody goes and tells. And that's what the apostles are doing. They go into the temple, teaching the whole message of the life. That's the life of Jesus. So what happens? End of verse 21 here. It says, now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came back did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them. The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, that they might be stoned. So, this really is the interesting part of the story. This, the scene in Acts 5 now shifts to the council, to the Sanhedrin, where the high priest is gathered with the ruling authority. To you know, it's, it's the morning session, and the first item on the agenda is these apostles of Jesus. What are we going to do with them? So the responsible agents are sent to go collect them from the, the, the public jail, but they're not there. The agents hustle back to the Sanhedrin. They say, you know, we got there. We found the prison doors. They're secure. The guard's standing at the post. Then we go inside, and nobody's inside. Well, of course, everyone's at a loss, and they're thinking, what in the world has happened? Then another person arrives, and this time he comes with good news. We found him. We found him. Nobody worry. They're at the uh, temple. They're preaching there. And, of course, once again, they had to be thinking, what in the world is going on? It had to be bringing confusion to these leaders there in the Sanhedrin. So the captain over the guard, in other words, the guy in charge for the, the security, he decides, well, he'll go with the officers to bring back these escaped prisoners who are now preaching in the temple area. But they retrieve the men without any force, physical force to speak of is, kind of, is what the scriptures make clear. See, what turns out is that these dramatic events that had happened overnight really turned the tables. For the, for the political leaders. It's obvious that at least some of them would have preferred to just have the guys killed than to interrogate them. But now the officers are cautious not to act too swiftly here or too harshly because they are afraid the people will turn on them now. Because it's like, look what's happening and now you're going to turn against them. In fact, their fear was that they might be the ones who are killed by the stoning if they act too harshly. So what happens is this question is left hanging in the air in this passage of Scripture. Who is ultimately in control? Who's in control? Because you guys think you are, but something's happening. So who's in control? You know, to look at the news today, it's very easy to be tempted to think that the world is spiraling out of control seems like the world's just divided, that there's tension in every corner of the world. Perhaps just bringing a little bit closer to home, you look at your own life and you feel like your life has not panned out the way that you thought it should, or at least the way you hoped it would. And you feel like you're a victim of circumstances and you think, is God not looking over me? I mean, who's in charge of my life? Do not for one second doubt God's control, Our infinitely good, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful. God works everything together for the good of those who trust him and for his glory. Well, one thing is for sure. The Sanhedrin was totally thwarted by this whole thing. They lost control of the situation. Everything was in God's hands, and he's working in the apostles' favor. So they're working against God now. Well, the apostles, for whatever reason, agreed to appear before the Sanhedrin, perhaps because they knew God was in control, and they very much were in his hands. So verse 27 says, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, the high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in the name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God. Rather than men, the high priest totally ignores this miraculous delivery from the prison. Do you notice that he doesn't say, "How'd y'all get out? Who, who's the inside guy that you've got on this?" He ignores it. And then, if you notice one other thing, he's real careful not even to say the name of Jesus. What well, you're, you're, you're preaching in the name, and you're going to make this man. So there, he's just being very careful. But he charges the apostles with three things: first, for not obeying official orders to stop preaching. The name of Jesus Christ. That was the law. They were violating the law. The second thing, the apostles were rejecting the teaching of the Sadducees of the Sanhedrin by arguing that Jesus was in fact alive. They did not believe in bodily resurrection. So this is heresy, just the fact that you're preaching this. Finally, it's clear the Sanhedrin was envious. At both the great results and the fact that these untrained apostles were seeing such great success. So the apostles respond in verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. Verse 29 indicates the apostles were were united in the way they responded. And we know that their desire was not to get the leaders of the Sanhedrin killed. Instead they wanted them saved. And so Peter and the apostles had to remain true to what God had commanded. In Acts 5, the church was seeing dramatic responses to the powerful move of the Holy Spirit. The religious and political leaders were overcome with jealousy and zeal to put a stop to what's happening here. The lives of the apostles are being threatened by the political leaders, but the apostles were even more emboldened. To remain true to God's call on their lives and by advancing the gospel message. So what I want to suggest to you this morning is this. Risking for God is dangerous, but not risking is more dangerous. Risking for God is dangerous, but not risking is more dangerous. The apostles were risking their very lives for the advance of the gospel. Could there be something worse than losing their lives? Well, the apostles thought so. They knew more important to them was just to obey God's command. I want to take a little detour. might take me a minute here. But I want to illustrate what I mean here. See, Jesus made this very clear to his disciples in a specific story that he told them. You'll remember it as the parable of the talents. See, Jesus told them a story. This is is his disciples who are asking him questions about his return. And he tells them about a wealthy man who was going away uh, for a time and he left his servants with in charge of his money. And to one servant, the rich boss gave five talents. To a second servant, he gives two talents. To a third, he gives one. Now, a talent is a large sum of money. Many speculate it was about 20 years of salary. So let's just call it a million dollars. So they give one five million bucks. He gives another one two million bucks, and he gives a third guy a million dollars. And he basically says, you're in charge of this. Make it work. You know, do what you need to do. So I want you to listen to what Jesus says the three men do uh, with uh, the money. Verse 16 of Matthew 25 says, Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner the one who had received two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So the man with five million turned it into ten. The man with two million turned it into four. The guy with one million dollars is just gonna not lose it. So, you know, he's asking himself, you know, how's this master? He decides, I'm just not gonna lose it, so he buries it. So now the master comes back. How does he respond to it? Well, the two guys who doubled their money, he commends them. He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. But how does he respond to the third servant, the one who was afraid to risk? What was entrusted to him because he feared that he might, it might not turn out the way he hoped for. Verse 26 says, But the master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You wicked, lazy slave. He says, You ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has uh, ten talents. Then he says, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. Here's what I want you to consider. The first two people invested the master's money, which was a risk, right? They could have lost it. There's no guarantee. We're seeing that. That's this past week in the market. It's, it, there's a lot of risk in it. But Jesus does not indicate that the master is up in arms saying, what if, what, what if the, the market would have crashed? What if you would have made a bad trade? Whatever it would have been. He says, well done. And the one who didn't risk it all, the one who made the safest bet, the one who did the responsible thing so he didn't lose anything, is called what? Wicked and lazy. Now, one could argue he wasn't too wicked with it. He could have spent it on himself. He could have wasted it throwing a party. He could have gambled it away. But instead, he was called wicked for something he did not do. Failure to risk our lives to the fullest potential for the kingdom of God is as wicked as the most reckless, sinful living. Failure to risk our lives to the fullest potential for the kingdom of God is as wicked as the most reckless, sinful living. See, the apostles could have chosen to play it safe and said, well, let's just keep quiet for a while. Let's just let things die down. The Sanhedrin will forget about us and then just, you know, we'll we'll move out and we'll spread the word. They didn't. They went back to the temple to preach. And now the council is asking the apostles to change their convictions rather than living for what God commands of them. They're being asked, just cool it. Are you going to face serious consequences? You know, most of us in this room know nothing of serious persecution. There are people in our world who face very serious persecution just to say the name Jesus. But the apostles knew their physical lives were threatened by the council. But they had made up their mind to obey God and trust God with the consequences. Charles Stanley is an incredible preacher and minister. of The gospel has been at First Baptist Atlanta for many years. He credits his grandfather for his strong faith. In one of his books, he quotes his grandfather saying that he said to him, Charles, if God tells you to run your head through a brick wall, you head for the wall. And when you get there, God will make a hole for it. His firm belief was to always trust and obey God and leave all the consequences to him. The apostles were being told to run for the wall, but they believed God would make a hole for them. So the challenge for us is to decide which master are we going to serve. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve uh, God and wealth. So God always calls us to Obedience. But it's obvious that the world is pressing us as believers into lukewarm living, pressing us into compromise. The church cannot compromise on the truth of God's word in order to be more appealing or to be less abrasive. The church must serve God and must stand up for his word. Well, Peter made it clear what the gospel was. In verse 30 of Acts 5, it says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, that's the gospel that Peter preached. And let me just tell you, you may know that, you may have heard that, But it demands a response. And the response is to say, yes, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I receive him into my life by believing on him for forgiveness so that I can have the forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross and receive him in my life as Savior. Have you done that before? Do you just nod at the gospel or have you responded to it? If not, would you respond to him today? I believe God is calling First Baptist Church to risky obedience. Now, the risk is not how will God respond to us. That's, that's not the risk. We, 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 every time, when we must remind ourselves that every great risk in God's name begins with confidence in his goodness and in his trustworthiness. So we believe God loves us. We believe that God has grace for each day. So it's not how's God going to respond to me. The risk is how obedience to God may affect the life I've dreamed about? How will saying yes to God affect my life today? If you're a believer, a, a Christian, then God has made an especially great deposit in your life. First, He gave you salvation. What are you doing with it? Salvation is not just meant for you, it's meant to share. Are you making the gospel known to your friends and your family and your neighbors? I mean, you could tell somebody about the gospel and they could reject you. They could alienate you. But they could also respond and all of a sudden have their eternity changed. They could miss out on possible heartbrokenness if you'll just share the gospel. The second deposit you've been given is the Holy Spirit. Peter makes that clear in verse 32. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers you to serve others in a a redemptive way. To bear fruit. For the sake of God's kingdom, to serve in the church through the giftedness of the Spirit. So by saying yes to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, it could lead to you giving up time that you wanted for yourself. You risk having to bear other people's burdens. You risk having to step out into, of your comfort zone in, in serving in the church or in responding to other people. God made a great investment in your life. Are you going to risk it or are you just going to kind of keep it buried? There's so many other things that God has invested in you. Incredible church, your family, your material wealth, your mind, your health, your your connections, your leverage. Do you want to let those things just stop with this life or do you want them to stretch into eternity? I believe that God's calling us as a church to say yes to obedience and it requires risk. We cannot just remain comfortable with the church the way we love it and like it. We, may, we must say yes in order to reach people beyond the walls here. Yes in order to go to the nations. So the time is now for us to put our yes on the table so that God can do at First Baptist Church what he wants to do. Our Father in God, we thank you for the incredible example of these apostles who said yes to you even knowing they were risking their life. God, now as we come to this moment of response, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts. I pray for each person here to say yes to you in the way that you're speaking to them. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If God's speaking to your heart today, would you respond? We have a time of invitation. Maybe you need to respond to the gospel, join the church. Maybe it's some other commitment. I would encourage you to make that decision today. I'm gonna be down front in just a moment. And if you want to join the church or respond to the gospel, you come straight to me. But you stand, our choir's gonna sing. And you respond.